Section two of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter two. Two Mark Twain editorials, written eighteen sixty nine and eighteen seventy for the Buffalo Express, of which Mark Twain became editor and part owner. One. Salutatory. Being a stranger, it would be immodest and unbecoming in me to suddenly and violently assume the associate editorship of the buffalo express without a single explanatory word of comfort or encouragement to the unoffending patrons of the paper who are about to be exposed to constant attacks of my wisdom and learning but this explanatory word shall be as brief as possible. I only wish to assure parties having a friendly interest in the prosperity of the journal that I am not going to hurt the paper deliberately and intentionally at any time. I am not going to introduce any startling reforms or in any way attempt to make trouble. I am simply going to do my plain, unpretending duty when I cannot get out of it. I shall work diligently and honestly and faithfully at all times and upon all occasions when privation and want shall compel me to do it. In writing I shall always confine myself strictly to the truth except when it is attended with inconvenience. I shall witheringly rebuke all forms of crime and misconduct, except when committed by the party inhabiting my own vest. I shall not make use of slang or vulgarity upon any occasion or under any circumstances and shall never use profanity except in discussing house-rent and taxes. Indeed, upon second thought, I will not even use it then, for it is unchristian, inelegant, and degrading, though, to speak truly, I do not see how house-rent and taxes are going to be discussed worth a cent without it, I shall not often meddle with politics, because we have a political editor who is already excellent and only needs to serve a term in the penitentiary in order to be perfect. I shall not write any poetry, unless I conceive a spite against the subscribers. Such is my platform. I do not see any earthly use in it, but custom is law, and custom must be obeyed, no matter how much violence it may do to one's feelings. And this custom, which I am slavishly following now, is surely one of the least necessary that ever came into vogue. In private life a man does not go and 
trumpet his crime before he commits it, but your new editor is such an important personage that he feels called upon to write a salutatory at once, and he puts into it all that he knows and all that he don't know, and some things he thinks he knows but isn't certain of, and he parades his list of wonders which he is going to perform, of reforms which he is going to introduce, and public evils which he is going to exterminate, and public blessings which he is going to create, and public nuisances which he is going to abate. He spreads this all out with oppressive solemnity over a column and a half of large print, and feels that the country is saved. His satisfaction over it, something enormous. He then settles down to his miracles and inflicts profound platitudes and impenetrable wisdom upon a helpless public as long as they can stand it, and then they send him off consul to some savage island in the Pacific in the vague hope that the cannibals will like him well enough to eat him and with an inhumanity which is but a fitting climax to his career of persecution, instead of packing his trunk at once, he lingers to inflict upon his benefactors a valedictory. If there is anything more uncalled for than a salutatory, it is one of those tearful, blubbering, long-winded valedictories wherein a man who has been annoying the public for ten years cannot take leave of them without sitting down to cry a column and a half still it is the custom to write valedictories and custom should be respected in my secret heart i admire my predecessor for declining to print a valedictory, though in public I say and shall continue to say sternly, it is custom, and he ought to have printed one. People never read them any more than they do the salutatories, but nevertheless he ought to have honored the old fossil, he ought to have printed a valedictory. I said as much to him, and he replied, I have resigned my place. I have departed this life. I am journalistically dead at present, ain't I? Yes. Well, wouldn't you consider it disgraceful in a corpse to sit up and comment on the funeral? I record it here and preserve it from oblivion as the briefest and best valedictory that has yet come under my notice. Mark Twain P.S. I am grateful for the kindly way in which the press of the land have taken notice 
of my eruption into regular journalistic life, telegraphically or editorially, and am happy in this place to express the feeling. 2. A Tribute to Anson Burlingame, February 1870. On Wednesday in St. Petersburg, Mr. Burlingame died after a short illness. It is not easy to comprehend at an instant's warning the exceeding magnitude of the loss which mankind sustains in this death, the loss which all nations and all peoples sustain in it. For he had outgrown the narrow citizenship of a state and become a citizen of the world, and his charity was large enough and his great heart warm enough to feel for all its races and to labor for them. He was a true man, a brave man, an earnest man, a liberal man, a just man, a generous man, in all his ways and by all his instincts a noble man. He was a man of education and culture, a finished conversationalist, a ready, able, and graceful speaker, a man of great brain, a broad and deep and weighty thinker. He was a great man, a very, very great man. He was imperially endowed by nature. He was faithfully befriended by circumstances, and he wrought gallantly, always, in whatever station he found himself. He was a large and handsome man, with such a face as children instinctively trust in, and homeless and friendless creatures appeal to without fear. He was courteous at all times, and to all people, and he had the rare and winning faculty of being always interested in whatever a man had to say, a faculty which he possessed simply because nothing was trivial to him which any man or woman or child had at heart. When others said harsh things about even unconscionable and intrusive bores after they had retired from his presence, Mr. Burlingame often said a generous word in their favor, but never an unkind one. A chivalrous generosity was his most marked characteristic, a large charity, a noble kindliness that could not comprehend narrowness or meanness. It is this that shows out in his fervent abolitionism, manifested at a time when it was neither very creditable nor very safe to hold such a creed. It was this that prompted him to hurl his famous Brooks and Sumner speech in the face of an astonished South at a time when all the North was smarting under the sneers and taunts and material aggressions of admired 
and applauded Southerners. It was this that made him so warmly espouse the cause of Italian liberty, an espousal so pointed and so vigorous as to attract the attention of Austria, which empire afterward declined to receive him when he was appointed Austrian envoy by Mr. Lincoln. It was this trait which prompted him to punish Americans in China when they imposed upon the Chinese. It was this trait which moved him in framing treaties to frame them in the broad interest of the world instead of selfishly seeking to acquire advantages for his own country alone and at the expense of the other party to the treaty as had always before been recognized diplomacy it was this trait which was and is the soul of the crowning achievements of his career the treaties with america and england in behalf of china in every labor of this man's life there was present a good and noble motive and in nothing that he ever did or said was there anything small or base in real greatness ability grandeur of character and achievement he stood head and shoulders above all the americans of today save one or two without any noise or any show or any flourish mr burlingame did a score of things of shining mark during his official residence in china they were hardly heard of away here in america when he first went to china he found that with all their kingly powers american envoys were still not of much consequence in the eyes of their countrymen of either civil or official position but he was a man who was always posted he knew all about the state of things he would find in china before he sailed from america and so he took care to demand and receive additional powers before he turned his back upon washington when the customary consular irregularities placidly continued and he notified those officials that such irregularities must instantly cease and they inquired with insolent flippancy what the consequence might be in case they did not cease he answered blandly that he would dismiss them from the highest to the lowest he had quietly come armed with absolute authority over their official lives the consular irregularities ceased a far healthier condition of american commercial interests ensued there to punish a foreigner in china was an unheard-of thing there was no way of accomplishing it each embassy had its own private district or grounds forced from the imperial government and into that sacred district chinese law officers could not intrude 
all foreigners guilty of offenses against Chinamen were tried by their own countrymen in these holy places, and as no Chinese testimony was admitted, the culprit almost always went free. One of the very first things Mr. Burlingame did was to make a Chinaman's oath as good as a foreigner's, and in his ministerial court, through Chinese and American testimony combined, he very shortly convicted a noted American ruffian of murdering a Chinaman. And now a community accustomed to light sentences were naturally startled when, under Mr. Burlingham's hand, and bearing the broad seal of the American embassy, came an order to take him out and hang him. Mr. Burlingham broke up the extraterritorial privileges, as they were called, as far as our country was concerned, and made justice as free to all and as untrammeled in the meets and bounds of its jurisdiction in China as ever it was in any land. Mr. Burlingame was the leading spirit in the cooperative policy. He got the Imperial College established. He procured permission for an American to open the coal mines of China. Through his efforts, China was the first country to close her ports against the war vessels of the Southern Confederacy, and Prince Kung's order in this matter was singularly energetic, comprehensive, and in earnest. The ports were closed then, and never opened to a southern warship afterward. Mr. Burlingame construed the treaties existing between China and the other nations. For many years the ablest diplomatists had vainly tried to come to a satisfactory understanding of certain obscure clauses of these treaties, and more than once powder had been burned in consequences of failure to come to such understandings. But the clear and comprehensive intellect of the American envoy reduced the wordy tangle of diplomatic phrases to a plain and honest handful of paragraphs, and these were unanimously and thankfully accepted by the other foreign envoys, and officially declared by them to be a thorough and satisfactory elucidation of all the uncertain clauses in the treaties. Mr. Burlingame did a mighty work, and made official intercourse with China lucid, simple, and systematic, thenceforth for all time, when he persuaded that government to adopt and accept the code of international law by which the civilized nations of the earth are guided and controlled. It is not possible to specify all the acts by which Mr. Burlingame made himself largely useful to the world during his official residence in China, 
at least it would not be possible to do it without making this sketch too lengthy and pretentious for a newspaper article mr burlingame's short history for he was only forty-seven reads like a fairy tale its successes its surprises its happy situations occur all along and each new episode is always an improvement upon the one which went before it he begins life an assistant in a surveying party away out on the western frontier then enters a branch of a western college then passes through harvard with the honors becomes a boston lawyer and looks back complacently from his high perch upon the old days when he was a surveyor nobody in the woods becomes a state senator and makes laws still advancing goes to the constitutional convention and makes regulations wherewith to rule the makers of laws enters congress and smiles back upon the legislature and the boston lawyer and from these smiles still back upon the country surveyor recognizes that he is known to fame in massachusetts challenges brooks and is known to the nation next with a long stride upward he is clothed with ministerial dignity and journeys to the underside of the world to represent the youngest in the court of the oldest of the nations and finally after years go by we see him moving serenely among the crowned heads of the old world a magnate with secretaries and under-secretaries about him a retinue of quaint outlandish orientals in his wake and a long following of servants and the world is aware that his salary is unbelievably enormous not to say imperial and likewise knows that he is invested with power to make treaties with all the chief nations of the earth and that he bears the stately title of ambassador and in his person represents the mysterious and awful grandeur of that vague colossus the emperor of china his mighty empire and his four hundred millions of subjects down what a dreamy vista his backward glance must stretch now to reach the insignificant surveyor in the western woods he was a good man and a very very great man america lost a son and all the world a servant when he died end of a tribute to anson burlingame and end of chapter two two mark twain editorials read by john greenman